It is such a delight to be here uh, this evening. In, in the last uh, day, we, we arrived just yesterday and right away uh, just received a very warm welcome from the church family here in Central California. I have to tell you, I've never been here before. I've never been anywhere near here before, actually. I'm from Southwest Montana, where the main man, Pastor Matt Tebow, is from, and his accomplice, Derek and Tana, and, uh, and his wife, Miss Trina. It's so good to see you guys. I love being here with you, and uh, get, just getting to see now, you know, where you guys serve. And just a, a quick story, I have to tell you, as much as, as, of a delight and an honor it is to be here, I do feel a little out of place. Scott Artavanis, Pastor Scott, came to our church 20 years ago, 21 years ago, before I was even a believer, and he did the first sermon in our church building uh, when we moved from downtown. And then when I became a believer back in 2011, about 10 years ago, I, I went to Bible college the very next year, and our, our pastor, college pastor, was doing this, this big push on Montana State University campus. They invited hundreds of MSU students, filled a, a good portion of our church uh, building, and Scott Artavanis was there preaching the gospel. And I was a new believer and just sat in the back and thought, wow, this is great. This is great teaching. And for that reason, I do feel a little out of place, a little bit the odd duck out, considering the good teaching that you guys are just used to. Nevertheless, I do have to say that I am thrilled to speak on the topic of unlikely converts. Now, if you've not been here the past few weeks, there is a series going on. You can see it. It's called the Unlikely Converts series here at Summerfest. And so far, there's been three stories, three stories that we've heard. And if, and if, you, if you weren't here, that's okay. Let me just bring you up to speed on the Unlikely Converts that the last few weeks we've been hearing about. First, we heard about a man who you never ever would have guessed would have ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. You would not in a million years think that the man named Saul of Tarsus would have ever become a Christian, but he met Jesus Christ on a road and believed. The next week, we heard about the primary leader of the most powerful religious group in first century Juda Judaism, in fact, he was the teacher of Israel. He was a Pharisee, and he was part of the Sanhedrin, and they were diametrically opposed to the Lord Jesus. In fact, they hated him so much that the unlikely convert, Nicodemus, had to visit Jesus secretly by night, and he was an unlikely convert uh, as well, but he became a follower of Jesus. Then last week, a licentious woman, a woman who had gone from one man to another man to another man. She was confused. She was fearful. She was a social outcast. And she met Jesus at a well. She's known to us as the Samaritan woman. Christ offered her a drink of living water. And she took it and believed. In each case, the last few weeks, we've met someone who was not the typical kind of person that you would expect to become a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. Tonight is no different. While many of us know Zacchaeus as a wee little man who climbed up in a sycamore tree, that is the nice toned down version that many of us learned in Sunday school. But what we often miss is that Zacchaeus was a complete political and religious traitor. He was an extortioner of the worst kind 
And he was totally loathed by his people. I guarantee you, he would be loathed by Americans as well. Uh, But before we get into the the ten precious verses that contain that unlikely convert's story, I would like for you to contemplate one other factor that, that draws all these people and binds those three historical figures or four historical figures together. Yes, they were all unlikely converts, but there's something else that we must not miss. And it is something that I did not understand regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. I just didn't get it until later in life. And God does not want you to miss this as well. Now, really fast, I grew up going to church. My testimony sounds so similar to yours, Tana. I was exposed to a lot of truth, precious truth, from God's Word. I went to Sunday schools. I went to camps. I remember in high school, I even went to a retreat. And somehow... Along the way, it came into my thinking that one could get to heaven by being a good person. How that happened, I don't really know. I say again, I was exposed to a lot of truth, but I came to the belief somehow in my early days that in order to be right with God, I needed to be good. I needed to do the right things and avoid the wrong things. And if I could just do that and keep that up enough... I would get there. And so, like is so often the case, I became a very smug young man. I was able to tick boxes for a while. I became very self-righteous by what I did not do and the things that I did do. My heart became very filled with pride, even as a young man. As I looked at my contemporaries, high school students, junior high uh, friends, I thought of myself as much, much better than them. Eventually, I became a total hypocrite. Eventually, it became clearer and clearer to me that I was not the righteous person that I had always thought. You see, the things that I saw my friends doing, eventually I did. The things that I looked down on at my friends in junior high, yeah, all the way back then, and in high school, I, I eventually did as well. Now, I became an idolater. I loved things more than God. I loved pleasure more than God. I was ridden with guilt. Praise the Lord that I was ridden with guilt. And as my sin began to catch up with me over the years, I became more and more aware that if I died, I would deserve judgment. I, I, I became more and more aware that I was not right with God. In a word, if I could summarize it, in a word, I was lost. My lostness looked different than Saul's. It looked different than Nicodemus's. It looked different than the woman at the wells. But lost I was. And here is what I didn't understand, friends. This is the thing, besides unlikely converts, that draws all of these things together, all of these people. This is the thing that I did not understand, that as Pastor Blake was saying earlier, if you came here tonight, may God help you to understand this. And this is it. Jesus came for people like me. I love being able to stand up in a room with people and say, yes, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came for people like me. He came for sinners. He came for the wicked. 
He came for murderers like Saul. He came for religious hypocrites like Nicodemus. He came for the sexually promiscuous like the Samaritan woman. And he came for political traitors and the scum of society like Zacchaeus. He came to save sinners like me and you. This is not hyperbole. This is not a rhetorical flourish. It is the bare bones truth of what scripture teaches. And friends, if you could, you know, it says unlikely converts. If you could put a verse underneath that, if you could put one verse and just stamp it on the last few weeks, the theme of Summerfest, if you could just put one glorious truth on it, here it would be. Are you ready? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, I know many of you have heard that before, that precious verse, uh, that glorious truth. It comes from the story of an unlikely convert. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost is the last verse of the story of Zacchaeus. So would you go there with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19? Luke chapter 19, mark it well. This is a place in Scripture that you will want to be able to come back to again and again and again and let it have its way with your heart. Let's just read verse by verse. Uh, I know typically we'd read all 10 verses, but I'm just going to read one verse at a time. We're going to sift our way through this treasure trove. Chapter 19 of Luke's Gospel, verse 1. It says this, He entered Jericho and was passing through. Let's stop. Now Jericho in the first century was a major metropolitan area. A lot of people were there, a lot of trade, a lot of commerce, a lot of buzz came through there. Hundreds of thousands of Jews from the north of Israel and from the northern part of the Mediterranean world would have to pass through Jericho on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Uh, Which, by the way, in Luke 19, the Passover was seven days away. We're on a Friday here when Jesus meets Zacchaeus. Seven days later was Golgotha. So Jesus also was on his way to Jerusalem. And thus throngs of people would bottleneck in Jerusalem every year on the way to the holy city. There's a a town in Montana called Butte. Uh, If you ever pass by it, you can just keep passing by it. Uh, There's about 33,000 people that live there. But every year at St. Paddy's Day, the 33,000 town, uh, member town, person town, becomes 100,000 people. And similar to Jericho, every year at that time, the inhabitants of Butte, just like the inhabitants of Jericho, would try to provide the thousands of travelers with food and water and souvenirs and accommodation. It would have been the busiest and most important time of the entire year in Jericho. We can't just pass over that fact. Also, you have to keep in mind that when Jesus comes through Jericho, he was famous. Jesus was famous. He was at the end of a three and a half year ministry and many people had actually come to believe that he was the Messiah. And so when Jesus came into Jericho with his disciples, it would have been the talk of the town. Word would have spread quickly that Jesus, Yeshua, the one from Nazareth, had arrived. After all, it was only a few miles away in the small town of Bethany 
that it was purported, reported that Jesus had raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. Do you think that word wouldn't have gotten out? So people would have come out to see Jesus. Was he the Messiah? What did he look like? What would he begin a revolt against Rome? The common folk would have been very curious to see the man who at this point, without a doubt, had a reputation of healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, uh, claiming to have the power and the authority to forgive sins, and raising people from the dead. And so when Jesus entered the city of Jericho, it would have created a wave of buzz in the town. Look at verse 2. Now there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. The word Zacchaeus means righteous one. It's a good name, Zacchaeus, means righteous one. But it's a little bit ironic because Zacchaeus was anything but righteous. He was not a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. And not only was he a chief tax collector, but he was in Jericho, a wealthy city. Now, if you know anything about tax collecting, and if you come to this church and you sit under Pastor Scott's teaching, I'm sure that you do. But in the first century, making a career out of tax collecting was highly lucrative because you could extort funds from anybody that you, would, that you were able to. So if somebody came to you and they owed $800 annually, let's just say, annual taxes to Rome, 800 bucks, you could say 805. They would pay. Nobody would know. Thus, tax collecting was a get-rich-quick career for any Jew who was willing to count the social and religious cost. Yes, there was a, a price tag that came along with it because tax collectors would have been seen as betraying their own people. They had betrayed Judaism, and thus they were seen as having betrayed God. They had sided, friends. You have to think about this. I was thinking about analogies. I'll get to one here in a sec. But they had sided with the oppressing state, and consequently they were seen as the scum of society. Now, some of you guys are uh, my age and, and older. Do you remember the old Patrick Swayze movie called Red Dawn? The Russians, so a few of you are nodding. The Russians invade the United States. Do you remember that? Just imagine for a second. If the, let's make it, let's just say, let's just say the Chinese uh, and Russia invaded the United States, okay? And Russia gets California. And they, they put up some tax booths here in town. And somebody from your church goes to their side and then begins coming around to your doors knocking and saying, hey, you owe the government, the Chinese government, this much money. And then they begin to extort from you. Here would be maybe another analogy. I know as we were driving through here, this area, this part of the country is, is red, right? It's a Republican part of the country. Just imagine if Joe Biden decided to, to move his headquarters here. And, and then just a couple of families in the church here decided to work for them. And they began, uh, you know, getting all of the uh, democratic propaganda into the schools. They began to, to campaign on the streets. And you saw them in your own church doing that. There, there would be a lot of conflict here. The, 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 if, you, if you can imagine that a little bit, just multiply it by 50. And we may be getting close. Zacchaeus would have been well known in his community as the chief tax collector. And he would have been the object of much hatred, ridicule, and scorn. Look at verse 3. He was trying to see who Jesus was, 
but he was not able because of the crowd. And since he was a short man, uh, since he was a short man, so he, you, you, this is kind of a, pic, a humorous picture, isn't it? Big crowds and the height-impaired people uh, do not always mix well. You can, kind of, you can kind of imagine the scenario. Zacchaeus was running around behind the crowd, jumping up perhaps, looking over, and, and he couldn't see the Messiah. He wanted to see who this man Jesus was. It's kind of funny. But what's not funny is the fact that Zacchaeus was risking his neck to see Jesus. You see, he had entered a crowd, something that would have been very dangerous for a chief tax collector to do, and it wouldn't have taken much in that setting to get an elbow to the head or a rock to the head or a dagger in the back. Nevertheless, Zacchaeus risked it. He risked the potential danger and the public ridicule in order to, to see Jesus. Now listen, when we're going through God's word like this, you know this. We got to stop. We got to slow down and, and ask a few questions. Why? Why would the chief tax collector risk going out just to see Jesus? Well, the text does not tell us why, but perhaps it was because he had heard that Jesus was a friend of sinners, that Jesus was a friend of outcasts, and, and he was known for eating with lowlifes. Luke chapter 5, earlier in the Gospel of Luke, says this. Do you remember when Jesus was calling his disciples and he called one named Levi? Let me just pick up the story right there, Luke 5, verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. Remember, Levi was a tax collector. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Don't you love those words? Let me just say them one more time. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those are hope-filled words for men like Zacchaeus. And friends, I hope that they're hope-filled words for you as well. Those words were so contrary to the social grain, they were so counter-cultural, that they would have spread like wildfire among the tax collectors. A few years ago, I have to tell you, there was a, another town near ours uh, there in southwestern Montana that's known for young people committing suicide. It's called Livingston. I don't know why. I don't know why it happens, but almost every year, a high school student or more than one kills themselves. And I remember when I was in Bible college, one of our teachers, when we were talking about this and why was it happening, and I remember he said this. I'll never forget it. He said, you wonder the difference it would have made. This was a girl. You, you wonder the difference it would have made in her heart if she had only known that she could have been forgiven. You, you wonder if she had only been, if she had only heard that there was forgiveness of sins offered, the difference that that would have made in her very, very confused heart. Perhaps Zacchaeus was hopeful for the same reason. Was it true? 
Was it true that Jesus was the Messiah? Was it true that such a man of such stature would forgive men like him? Well, we can't be dogmatic, but whatever it was, it sure caused him to put himself in a lot of danger. Look at verse 4. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. Now, it was not customary for men to run in the first century. Frankly, it's not customary today either, nor should it be. Men don't run outside of gyms maybe. Uh, but no, nor was it socially acceptable for grown men to climb up in trees. They wore robes, that kind of thing. You would have said, don't, please don't climb up in trees, men. Just stay on the ground. Zac- when, when Zacchaeus climbed up in the tree, not only was he drawing attention to himself, but also he was doing all of the things that were not expected of men. And so the fact that Zacchaeus was a hated member of society would have only heightened the risk that he was taking by running and climbing trees. But nevertheless, his desire to see Jesus overcame the fear of public scrutiny and ridicule. Now really fast, you can get this in your imaginations. Sycamore trees are short trees with long branches and they stretch out real far, right? Have you seen a sycamore tree before? They're not that tall, but they go real far out. And so Zacchaeus probably perched himself on a branch right over the path that the big crowd was coming down. Look at verse five. So there he was, he was up in the tree. Verse five, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, I just want to read this again. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today I must stay at your house. The fact that Jesus looked straight up at him, and in the middle of this crowd and all of the buzz that was certainly going on, hundreds of people, if not more, and then called him by name, Zacchaeus probably would have been enough to knock this wee little man straight out of the tree. Now, a a million questions, you can imagine, must have raced through Zacchaeus' mind. How does he know my name? Are the stories true about him? Why is he speaking to me? What are the others going to think? What are they going to say? Are the stories of Jesus forgiving sinners really true? Why does he want to come to my house? Jesus Surrounded by hundreds of people, by the way, people who had particular expectations about what messiahs should be doing and what they should not be doing. He blows all their expectations to pieces when he looks up at the sinner named Zacchaeus, probably the most despised person in the entire city, calls him by name, and then invites himself over to the man's house. Friends, Jesus was not the messiah that people expected, was he? The the people wanted him to throw off the rule of Rome. The people wanted Jesus, the Messiah, to take Jerusalem by storm. They wanted him to restore the Davidic kingdom to Israel. And he will do all of those things in his second coming. However, here Jesus was not doing that. He was seeking and saving the lost. Can I just stop there for a sec? Can you imagine being one week out from your death? One week out knowing the wrath that you are going to face and not having that utterly consume you, but rather be thinking about others? 
but rather be looking to sinners like Zacchaeus. He was seven days away, the Lord was, and he was looking for the lost. He was seeking the lost, not just the kind of lost. He was seeking the very lost, Zacchaeus. Look at verse 6. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. Now, for those of you who don't like adverbs, you should. Quickly he came down. He didn't, he didn't take his time. He quickly came down. And then he welcomed Jesus joyfully. Look at verse 7. All who saw it began to complain. He's gone to lodge with a sinful man. Really fast. Just compa- compare the two responses here. You've got Zacchaeus. He welcomes Jesus gladly, with joy in fact, but the crowd complains. Just just think of the excitement that would have been in the air. Here he is. Here's the Messiah walking through our city, eating our food, drinking our water, speaking with our people. And then he stops. The crowd goes silent. He looks up in a tree, and Jesus speaks to the most hated man in the city. Oh, they did not like that. They complained. Diagangutso is the word. They murmured. They complained. What is this? This is not what the Messiah should be doing. This was not what Jesus was supposed to do. And, and, and Jesus was taking heed of sinners and low lives. Unlike them, Zacchaeus quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. Look at verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Now pay very close attention here. There is a time gap between verse 7 and verse 8 that is very easy to miss. Verse 7 takes place under the tree. Jesus tells him to come down. Verse 8 takes place hours later perhaps even the next day. Let me just give you three reasons why that's the case. First, the crowd says, look at the verse again, the crowd says he has gone to lodge with a sinful man. So from their point of view, Jesus had gone to Zacchaeus' house. Do you see that? They were no longer standing under the tree. He has gone. Now, second, in verse 8, the verb stood. Zacchaeus stood. It actually has a deeper meaning here than to stand. It's more like, Zacchaeus took his stand. He, he, he stood up. It's not a physical stand. It's a religious one, an ideological stand, a spiritual stand. He took his stand. In fact, you could render it, Zacchaeus established that. The third reason is that it just wouldn't make sense for Zacchaeus to say this under the tree. <laughs> okay, Lord, I'll give, you, I'll give everything And that's because he didn't say it there. He promised to give half of his wealth to the poor and make restitution for the things that he had stolen. Uh, And and that happened hours later after he had interacted with Jesus. Now, really fast, for those of you who know the rich young ruler, do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? Do you guys remember that? And, And Jesus told him, he said, you know the law. And he pointed the young man to the law. And, and the man uh, mistakenly said, I've kept all these things from my youth. Jesus said, okay, okay, you, you, you lack one thing. Do you remember this? He said, go sell everything you own, come back and follow me. 
Now, follow it. He said, you lack one thing. So there was one thing that he did not, lack, that he did not have, and, and there was one thing that was holding him from getting it. The thing that he didn't have was Jesus, and the thing that was holding him back was his wealth. And so he said, go and give all that you have to the poor and come and follow me. You remember what happens? The man was unwilling to do that. Do you, do you know where that story is? It's just a few verses prior to Zacchaeus' story. Compare them. And on the one hand, uh, Zacchaeus says, Lord, I'll give everything. I'll give everything away to follow you. After he had understood the forgiveness that Jesus offered publicans, tax collectors like him, he said, Lord, I'll give it all away. I'll give it all away to follow you. The rich young ruler was not willing to do that. And so the difference is stark. It's so stark. Half of, of Zacchaeus' possessions would have been the equivalent of millions of dollars. Imagine somebody who has a huge estate, millions, and says, Jesus, I'll give it all away. I'll give it all away. In verse 8, friends, when Zacchaeus says this, we are hearing a new man, a different man. The conversations that had happened between Jesus and Zacchaeus had changed him. He was a man who was willing now to repent. He was a man who had put his faith in Jesus. He was a man who was saved. Look at verse 9. Today, salvation has come to this house. Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. Now, in order to not let anybody think that Zacchaeus was saved by giving up his wealth, Jesus says this second phrase. He says, because he too is a son of Abraham. Jesus did not want anyone to think that a person could be saved by works. That's why Luke records this as well. You can't be saved by giving up your wealth or doing anything that's good or bad. Jesus didn't want anybody to think that. And so he tells us that Zacchaeus was saved not by works, but by faith. And you say, how did he do that? Well, there are two kinds of sons of Abraham. Right here he says, he, he too is a son of Abraham. Well, there are two kinds of sons of Abraham. There are the physical descendants, the genetic, ethnic, national sons of Abraham, the Jews. And the other kind of son is a spiritual one. One who trusts in God in the same way that Abraham did. You guys, do you ever think about how genius Jesus was? His genius really comes out here as he points our attention to Abraham. You want to talk about unlikely converts. Abraham was not a Christian, obviously. He was not a Jew either. He lived 2,000 years prior to Christ, and he was the grandfather of Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel and the Jewish nation. Abraham was from a completely pagan family. He didn't know anything about God. In fact, in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, it says that Abraham came from an idol-worshiping family. Nevertheless, God sought Abraham, as unlikely a convert as he was, and then saved him in Genesis 15, 6. Now, my family is memorizing, my, my little girl, my little boys are memorizing Genesis 15, 6. We tell them, that verse is the John 3, 16 of the Old Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We know that verse, wonderful, glorious truth. In the Old Testament, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham was not baptized. 
He was not circumcised. That doesn't happen until 14 years later, by the way. There was no Mosaic law. Moses was not even alive. He wasn't even in the picture. Mount Sinai is 400 years after Abraham. And so how was Abraham saved? No church, no religious stuff, no baptism, no circumcision, no clergy, no law. How did salvation come to Abraham? Answer, Abraham believed the Lord. He believed the Lord. By the way, Paul uses Abraham as his poster child of the magnificent doctrine of justification by faith alone. In Romans chapter 4, just listen to verse 11. It says this, So that Abraham became the father of all who believe. So Jesus here tells Zacchaeus, a Jew who had become a different kind of son of Abraham. He had become the true believer. That's the reason that Jesus gives. He says, salvation has come to his house because at some point during that time, between verse 7 and 8, Zacchaeus had put his trust in Jesus Christ. And here we are at verse 10. One of the most glorious, hope-filled, grace-saturated verses in all of the Bible. You can ask Pastor Scott this later if he agrees. I think it is one of the most magnificent revelations of the heart of God in all of Scripture. If you don't have this underlined or highlighted, you might want to. Look at verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Brothers and sisters, do you want to know if you're a Christian? Even right here, sitting in these seats where you're at tonight, do you want to know if you're a Christian? When you hear the words of Jesus Christ say that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, is there something within you that cries out, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Because if you did not seek and you did not save, lost I would remain. Without the seeking and saving ministry of the Son of Man, you and I would have no hope. Let's just take it apart. For the Son of Man, that was Jesus' most favorite uh, title, self-title. He called himself the Son of Man all of the time. It's actually a reference to deity from Daniel chapter 9. The Son of Man, he said, has come. Can you imagine that God became man and then lived a life never once sinning? Tana alluded to it earlier. Do you think about that? Jesus was a little boy and then a little young man and a teenager and then a man and never once, never once did he sin. Never once. Oh, but he was God. Wrong. He, he was God. But that's not why he didn't sin. He used the resources that you and I have and in his humanity, he was tempted in every way that we are and never did it. Men, don't you love it? One of us succeeded. One of us did it. The second Adam, he came. The Son of Man came. And there is one who can represent us. There is one who can open the scroll. There is one who can stand before Yahweh and take his hand and take our hand and reconcile us. Praise the Lord. One of us did it. He came. Then you have these two phrases, to seek and to save. Greek scholars will tell you they're, they're infinitives of purpose. It, it tells us why he came. Two infinitives, to seek and to save. The first one, to seek, the word is zeteo. It means to pursue, to look for, to search for. 
This is why I say, by the way, it's one of the greatest revelations of God, the character of God. He, according to Jesus, he seeks, he searches. Do you remember back in Luke 15, it, Jesus gave these three parables, the parable of the woman who lost the coin, and, and then she found it and she rejoiced that she had found it. And then another one, a shepherd who lost a sheep. And so he looks and looks and looks for the lost sheep. And then he finds it, he puts it over his shoulders, rejoices. And then the one, the, the one that we all love, the lost son. The son is coming and the father's looking for him, sees him far off and runs to him, gets the pig filth all over himself, kisses his face, puts the ring on, the cloth on. Do you remember that? That's what God does. He seeks. He did it in the Old Testament in the garden. Do you remember after they had sinned? God came, walked in the garden, said, where are you? Where are you, Adam? He did it in, in the Old Testament, seeking the lost. He did it in the New Testament, seeking the lost. And praise God that he does it still. In fact, he is doing it tonight. So Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, he came to seek. The second infinitive is he came to save. Zoso, it means to rescue from danger. So the Son of Man came not only to seek, but he also came to save and rescue men and women who face eternal destruction. Do you know the two scariest things about hell? I remember reading a book, and I've never been more afraid of hell than when I read this book. It's called The Story of Reality. And in that book, he talks about two truths, inescapable truths. One, that hell is real. It is a real place. It really is a real place. Two, that it is an eternal place. It, when you go, you don't come out. I remember in the book, he said this phrase, I'll never forget it. Once people who go there have suffered for a billion years, they will not have even begun. I, I, it's difficult to fathom that. When we say that Jesus Christ saves, he was a great savior. He saved us from the worst peril the wrath of a good God. How did he do it? 1 Peter 3.18 says this. Listen to this verse. Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus Christ, he suffered as a righteous man. He suffered for our sins. The sins that you have committed Jesus Christ suffered on that cross. The sins that I personally have committed, Jesus took and he personally suffered. That's how he saves. He becomes our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus at the cross became a murderer for Saul of Tarsus. Jesus at the cross became an idolater for Nicodemus. At the cross, Jesus became sexually immoral for the woman at the well. Did he actually commit sins? No, he didn't. But he was treated as if he did. And, and he also became a political traitor and an extortioner for Zacchaeus. And so the Son of Man, friends, he came to seek and he came to save the lost. And he did the seeking by becoming a man. He did the, sa the saving by dying a death that you and I deserve at Calvary. Now listen, in, in, in closing here, I must tell you that Jesus continues to do this 
Praise the Lord. Luke 19.10 is not just there and it's just only for them. He continues to seek and to save the lost, doesn't he? You heard a testimony just a half an hour ago about about him doing that. Now, for 2,000 years, men and women have heard the message of the gospel all over the world, just like Zacchaeus. And they become recipients of Christ's seeking and saving ministry, his seeking and saving work. And so, if you came here tonight and you are not reconciled to God, if you came here tonight and you do not believe in the Lord Jesus, listen to me, please. You may not ever have an opportunity like this again. You think you can put it off, but there is no guarantee that you can. You may never understand or ever hear in your ears the gospel message so clearly proclaimed. And so I call on you tonight to believe. How could you stiff arm such a Savior? How could you hold at bay such an offer of salvation at the expense of Jesus Christ? Paul was once asked by a very wicked man, a jailer, a Roman jailer at Philippi. The man asked him, he said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said this, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And so with all that is in me, friends, I call on you to look away from your past. I call on you tonight to look away from your religion, whatever it is. I call on you tonight to look away from your baptism or to look away from your family or to look away from that time that you maybe once did something that you knew was right or or the time when you prayed a particular prayer. Look away from that and look to the Lord Jesus. He is enough. And friends, he came for people like you.